Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I'm only a youth. For to all to my send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I'm with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put, on, put out his hand and touched my mouth. Behold, the Lord said to me, Behold, I put my words in your mouth. See, I've set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Then First uh, Corinthians 13, which you've probably heard before. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Then finally, from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, picking up where we left off last time at the 21st verse. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the name of the prophet, in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. While passing through their midst, he went away. Let me pray once more for us. Father, we thank you for this word. And we thank you that all of it bears your authority, that it is indeed your word, though they come 
from the pen of three different people. You stand behind the text yourself. God, we pray that our hearts would be open, that we would hear your voice and not our own, not mine. God, we pray that you'd help us to hear what is good and true and right here so that our lives would conform to what is good and true and right. Pray that you would do this to the praise of Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, um, we are dealing with what it is we are speaking and we are hearing from the lips of three different prophets, in a sense. Jeremiah the prophet, Paul the apostle, who speaks with this kind of authority, and of course, the prophet of prophets, Jesus himself. Jeremiah is, this is at the beginning of his book, and it's a description of his call. And um, Jeremiah, from what we can tell, is quite young. When, when he says that he's only a youth, that what that word is referring to, his youthfulness is incredibly youthy. Uh, he's very small in stature uh, in, in society. At this place in time, it is not valued to be a youth. In our culture, it is. All the advertisements are with young people on the front, uh, except for certain medications. Um, in this day and time, nobody's advertising that way. Uh, you want the oldest guy in the room to be speaking for you. And so when Jeremiah says, I can't do this, I am only a youth, he's speaking to a real disadvantage. And God says, it does not matter. I am with you. And I am putting these words in your mouth. I am calling you to this task and to this speech puts his hand over Jeremiah's mouth. And Jeremiah is told that his words will overturn nations and that he will uproot and pluck, not because of his own authority, of course, but because he carries the authority of the words of God himself. Jeremiah has a, in many ways, terrible job. If you've read the book of, of Jeremiah, it is not a fun read it is largely depressing. And God tells him, you're going to tell these people what to do, what they ought to do, how they res should respond, and they will reject you. And they do. Not only do they reject him and say, I don't believe you, they also like throw him in a hole and try to kill him. They completely malign his reputation. But Jeremiah is called to this task to speak this word, a word of power and authority the God of Israel, announcing to Israel, his people, time is up, the clock has run out, you have run away from me for far too long, and you're about to be exiled. There is something on the other side of exile. But what's coming first is disaster upon you. That's Jeremiah's life. And you can read all 50 chapters of it. Paul pins this very famous chapter. You've probably heard 1 Corinthians 13 before. Even if you don't really read the Bible and don't really know what is a Corinthian or why there's one of them or two of them or three or four of them, you've probably heard 1 Corinthians 13 at a wedding most likely. People like to read 1 Corinthians 13 
at their wedding as they stand in front of everyone and make these vows and commitments of love. And of course, Peter, Paul is writing 1 Corinthians 13 with almost nothing to do with weddings in mind. The people of Corinth are a people who are obsessed with spiritual gifts. And they live in a place and a time where the spiritual gifts, the really flashy ones, are what they really care about. Speaking in tongues, prophecy, healings, all of these things are highest on their list of priorities. And, and Paul doesn't say that those things are bad. He, in fact, on either side of this chapter are telling you why these gifts are actually really important. And in 1 Corinthians 14, he tells you you should desire these gifts. But what he wants to do in the middle of this discourse on spiritual gifts is make sure they are very, very clear on what is the greatest gift that God gives. The speaking in tongues, the prophecy, great. They're wonderful. You should all desire to prophesy, he says. But the greatest gift that God gives is this one, and it's love. It's, it's his love. It's the love that comes from Christ and in Christ and transforms our lives into a life of loving as Gordon Fee says in commenting on this passage, he says, love as just mere feeling is unfamiliar and foreign to Paul. And you can hear it in the way that he talks about love. Love is active in doing and transforming. And love will endure. Spiritual gifts are here for a time, but the time is ticking down. Love endures. I um, I don't know, maybe I don't know if you grew up in church or what kind of church you grew up in. Um, I I grew up at least in my home in and in churches where one spiritual gifts were super important. It's a big part of our life together. I grew up in charismatic churches, um, which I'm grateful for. Um, but I also grew up in a home that really really emphasized truth, the truth of the scriptures. And in teaching and believing, proclaiming what is true. To be honest, as famous as 1 Corinthians 13 was, and I had to memorize it at some point in my Christian school education, it sort of just kind of naturally became to me like, yeah, 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 love, right. Love is for sissies. Love is for babies. Uh, what we need is truth. And if all these other people, I would probably have called them the liberals, they care about love. And frankly, they've got that market cornered. And so I don't want to be on that corner. I'm not with them. So yes, 1 Corinthians 13 is the Bible, but let's just read it real quick and get to other more interesting parts. Me, my nature was, okay, truth. Let's talk about what is true. And there's incredible danger in that kind of life. Danger that I felt and experienced. God had to do a ton of work in me as we came around that issue, and constantly have to. The most loving, gracious 
person of all time, of course, is Jesus. It's, it's unavoidable. You can't, you can't be this truth is what matters kind of guy and ignore the truth of what is in the Gospels, which is how central the mission of love is to Jesus. In this story of Jesus' announcement of his own ministry in Luke chapter 4 shows the way that these things are knit together, truth and love. Because it is true that many people in our day are happy to throw around the term love and just say, we just need to love. And what they mean is something very different than what I mean when I say love and what I would say God means when he says love. Because what a lot of people tend to mean when they say we should all just love one another is basically this sort of undefined, unguided, unfenced definition of what love ought to be. So that love becomes something you can basically use as a trump card for anything that you personally want to do or something that any the thing that your neighbor wants to do. Love becomes so unclear and foggy that there is no boundary to where and what love is. And Luke chapter 4 plainly shows us that that is not the kind of love that Jesus demonstrated or preached. It's this strange thing where you get to see this picture of what love really looks like in this one tiny little story. Because Jesus, if you remember from last week, he stands up and he starts reading Isaiah 61. He tells the people, this is fulfilled in your hearing, clearly referencing himself. And what do we hear this week? The people are overwhelmed with the gracious words that are falling from his lips. They're attracted to what he is saying. He is winsome in the message that he delivers, that Jesus is coming to open blind eyes, set prisoners free, give freedom to the oppressed, to the captive. People are attracted to the love of God in Christ. But what immediately happens is they decide they want love on their terms. And Jesus knows that this is what they want. And in the moment where they are sort of stirred up by his gracious words, he immediately moves in to crush what they define to be love. They are defining love as people of Israel as the elimination of Israel's enemies and the freedom of their nation state in that place. And what Jesus does is tell these stories from the Old Testament of where God did not heal the Israelite, he healed the pagan. He healed the one who is from far off. Naaman is a foreign invader, and Naaman is the one who is healed, not the Israelites, the foreign widow who is receiving resurrection power. And they know exactly what he is saying to them. There is no misunderstanding. They are furious with him because what they want him to do is to affirm what they desire and give them that thing. And Jesus is saying, you have the wrong idea in mind. Because the love of God 
simultaneously is more exclusive and more generous than we are wont to believe. The people of Israel are are comfortable demanding of God that love be this way, which is the freedom of Israel from political oppression, from foreign outsiders. And Jesus' definition of love is also exclusive. I will not be confined or constrained by your definition. Mine is the right one. And at the same time, he's saying your definition is too small because I came to proclaim these things not just for Israel, but all of those people that you despise and want wiped off the map. Your problem, Israel, is that you are wrong in the smallness of your vision of love. And for that... In this moment in Luke chapter 4, and all the way to the end of the Gospels, they want to kill him because of how firmly he stomps on their expectations. And this is the way that the love of God is. That it is, in fact disruptive to this degree. When Jeremiah is told that his words uproot uproot kingdoms and overturn powers, those words are still true of the powerful word of God's own love. And the truth is that 1 Corinthians 13 is incredibly disruptive and powerful to my life into yours, or at least it ought to be, because 1 Corinthians 13 is a description of a kind of love that I am deeply uncomfortable with. This is not a kind of love that I can just willy-nilly throw about. So when I do weddings for people and they say they want to read 1 Corinthians 13, I'm just like, "Ah, do you though? Is that what, have you read 1 Corinthians 13? Let me, let me go back to some of these words that I have problems with. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. Have you ever won an argument with a spouse? I have some. I, I prefer boasting, actually. Thank you very much. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Do you want to read 1 Corinthians 13 at your wedding? Are you sure that's what you want? And of course, if you read 1 Corinthians 13 and understand the context in which Paul is writing, you can't help but hear that Paul's definition of love, where he gets these ideas from, are the person of Jesus himself. This description of love is flowing out from what we know in the Gospels. And the problem that Israel has with Jesus in that moment is that he is this loving 
This is precisely, in their opinion, the problem. Why is God's love patient and kind towards those pagans? Why is God so gracious with those people over there? And it is constant within our lives that there is always a people over there. There's somebody that's over there. It doesn't matter where you are on the theological or political spectrum. You are always on one side and somebody is over there. And those people over there are over there. And you want them to stay over there. And your preference would be that you would be vindicated and looked looked at as the right one, as the good one, as the true one, and they would be crushed. And look, they're wrong about something. Wherever you are on that map, you're right. Those people over there are wrong about something. Maybe deeply important things. And that's, in fact, what Christians today are, are really good at identifying really important things that those people get wrong. And my response to those people is not patient and kind. But my response is to figure out a way in the name of truth to justify my own rudeness to delight in their wrongdoing to prove my own right doing. And I can just put my thumb over that portion about speaking in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love. And I'm a clanging cymbal, resounding gong. And just say, if I speak truly and rightly, then I'm singing with the choirs of heaven. That is not what 1 Corinthians 13 says. And in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is not saying to the people present, I will vindicate your agenda and wipe out the foreigners. Jesus quotes Isaiah 61, and he says that these words are fulfilled not to the exclusion of the people who are present in the room, but to the inclusion of all of those whom they despise. Jesus centers the fulfillment of Israel's hope on himself. And if you want to live a life of love, you have to center your definition on what that means, on Christ himself. It doesn't mean to blur the lines on what is right and wrong and good and true. But it is an acknowledgement that you and I are ones who are living far off, that have been so deeply wrong and opposed to the things of God, And the love of God in Christ Jesus came from me. That when Jesus proclaimed his message, he proclaimed it to me 
in the depths of my own sin and error and did not withhold his mercy from me. So my brother, my sister who is over there, the person in the middle of this political climate, social climate who offends me, who I think is wrong in so many places, so many ways. I am not permitted to redefine or rewrite 1 Corinthians 13 because I'm in the right. But instead, I'm called to obey the commands of Scripture, to center my attention on Jesus and Jesus alone and pray that God would extend his mercy to even them as he has extended his mercy to even me. That word actually does tear down kingdoms. It, it upends things. It dissolves power structures and erases barriers of, of, of hate and fear. It, it changes the structure of neighborhoods. And most personally, it stomps all over my kingdom. Because what I, I deeply want more than most things most days is to rule. I crave to be king. And that all of you people would acknowledge my superiority and my authority. And that you would arrange your lives around what I desire. So that none of you would ever cut me off in traffic. None of you would ever drive too fast or too slow, but the exact speed that I want to drive, you would all have the exact same views as me. You would conform your reality to mine. That temptation and desire is right at the center of my life. And the love of God in Christ Jesus ruins that kingdom. Ruins it. It says that only Jesus gets to be king and not me. I don't get to write off anyone. I don't care how wrong I know them to be or how disturbing their sin is. I don't get to write them off and say, not those people over there. I have to live in a community where we commit to one another to continue to pray Jesus' prayer. That one another, each of us who sinned against each other, would continually be forgiven because of the forgiveness that's offered to me. It is a radically reshaping love. It is not a feeling. It is a person. It's Jesus. And if you are here today, I can, I can pretty much promise you that somewhere in your heart, and, and you know, maybe you're more like me, that you only have to dig like an inch deep in your heart 
and say, oh, there they are. There's those people that I would say, like, okay, God, just put them in a different category. Do something different with them, please. But maybe, and I would trust this to be true, you're all better than me. Maybe you have to dig a little bit deeper than an inch. Maybe, in fact, you are even unaware of the places where you have been stingy with the announcement of God's goodness and love. And you may need to sit with God and say, would you sift my heart and show me where I have blinded myself to the way that I would say, don't start with those people over there, start with me. And this morning, you need to understand that the people that drive you nuts, the people who you would say they are whatever, way too liberal, way too fundamentalist, way too whatever, too much of whatever that thing is, you were a greater offender of God's holiness than them. You are, I am, the worst sinner that I know. Because I have experienced from the inside every moment of my rebellion against God. And God has set his mercy on you. He loves you. That is not some softball truth. That is the center of the good news of God in Christ Jesus. That you, who have run from him time and again, the worst offender that you know, he has set his mercy on you. And he has said to you, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will be your God and you will be my people. Because the, the love of God in Christ Jesus comes not just for those people over there. It's come for me. And most days I find that unbelievable. And the good news is just that good. If you are here today and you are weighted down by the power of your own resentment and unforgiveness of those people over there, Jesus, he said, Isaiah 61, for you, that you would be released from the oppression of your own resentment. He came to free you. And if you have clung to your agenda, you have clung to your superiority for whatever reason. Today, you get to let that go. And you should repent. You should release it. Turn those people over to God and receive in return the goodness and the kindness of his love. And if you are here today and you have been buried in secret sin, if you have been hiding in the dark, and maybe you're like really good at putting on a cover. Everybody looks at you as a holy one. Everybody looks at you as like 
picture a perfect Christian, but you have lived a second life and you have been bound by the shame of your second life. You are not too far over there for Jesus to come and get you. You are offended at the thought of you being rescued and forgiven. And Jesus came to speak those gracious words to you. Today, mercy is at hand. It is available to you. And if you would come before God in all honesty, you would hear that this Jesus is the same today as he was yesterday and he will be tomorrow. And he will say to you that he has come to set you free. And if you would like, I would love to talk to you about that. If you need to say out loud to somebody, look, this is my secret shame. Whatever it is. I'm so bound to the way that people look at me. I, have, I am bound by pornography. I am bound by desire for new things. Whatever it is, if you just need to say that out loud to somebody, you can say that out loud to me or to a friend or to an elder. And I'll be happy to tell you the good news of Jesus, that even you, my friend, he has come to set free. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, We thank you that the definition of your love, we don't have to look anywhere else to have it defined for us, that you give love on your terms. And it is entirely exclusive that you insist that your way is the right way to love and to be loving. And Father, we're so grateful that that announcement is the very best news. We pray, God, that love would fill us up to overflowing. That this would be a church known for its loving, not for just sentimentality, not for weak, undefined loving, but a kind of loving that looks at sinful people in the eye and says, because Jesus has been kind and patient with me, I'm going to be kind and patient with you. Because God is so generous with me, I'm not going to be rude. I'm not going to be boastful. I'm going to continue to be generous to you because God continues to be generous with me. God, may this church be known by that kind of love. Lead us ever so slowly or in leaps and bounds to be that kind of loving with one another. And Father, I pray that you would upturn our own kingdoms. We would surrender and turn to you. Father, I pray for everyone who is bound up, who feels so deep in darkness that they're blind forever, in prison forever. They will hear a word of deliverance and mercy this morning, and they will be set free. Father, would you be in that business here at Valley Hope in our life together? We would see the freedom of God setting people free. Father, I pray that word be heard by people who need to hear it, that it wouldn't just roll off their back one more time, but today would be the day it would pierce them, change them, unlock their heart, and set them free. We thank you for your persistence. We thank you for the love of God in Christ Jesus. 
We pray that it would be the thing that we feast upon, the thing that fuels our life, the thing that defines who we are. We love you, Jesus, and we're grateful for your love, which is ever more faithful and true. Amen.